Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Baby, won't you come out tonight and listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast with me? I want to thank Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. My name is John McAdam. Thank you for listening. I'm going to say something that I should have said a long time ago. If you like this show, if you've been tuned in for a week, a month, a year, we have a long archive of shows. It's at mcadampod.com, all one word. As of now, there's over 170 episodes of Stick to Wrestling you can listen to. The show has changed quite a bit as time has gone on, but I think it's gotten better, but different isn't bad either. Before I get rolling, I want to encourage everyone to A, follow me on Twitter. I am literally at 900 90 something followers and i'd like to get to 1000 so please i I think i'm like 991 just search john mcadam follow the guy who is wrestlers fighting with chairs in his avatar and also you want to join our facebook group just put in stick to wrestling in the search engine it will come up we have good conversations over there the the group has exploded over the past month or so and i want to thank everybody for that uh, we talk mostly talk wrestling. We talk a little movies. I put up a college football thread every week during the season. I give you my top 25, which everyone criticizes, but that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything I say. And another, well, let me bring on our guest first. Returning the stick to wrestling. It's been too long. Brandon Hefner, how you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks. I appreciate you having me back on. Always have a good time. And this is uh should be a good topic tonight. Uh, pretty historic uh event i i am very excited about our topic one thing though when we talk about the the facebook page like you get a lot of interesting information and we were talking about the Freebirds coming to boston for the, the real Freebirds coming to boston for the first and only time on september 9th uh 1984 uh michael hayes and terry gordy wrestled at, at the garden and I did. I was not at this show. <laughs> I was at a Bruce Springsteen concert. I got to see wrestling the next night. But anyway, uh, up in Manchester, New Hampshire. And we were talking about the Freebirds. Like, you know, did they draw on this show? And forgive me if you've heard the story before. A year earlier, October 1983, I was at the Boston Garden for wrestling. And they were announcing the, the next month's card. And then the guy says at the end... Uh, also, making we have a, a special attraction, S.D. Jones against fabulous Freebird Michael Hayes, and the place came unglued. I mean, it was like one of the biggest pops I've ever seen for wrestling, and it just goes to show you how over both world-class championship wrestling and the Freebirds were in Boston almost 40 years ago. But, uh, here's, but here's my main point, Brandon, which I'm taking too, far too long to go go to. I really think that if anyone goes to a major arena to see wrestling, there are exceptions, but they're going, I think more than anything, they're going to see wrestling more than they're going to go more than they want to see one particular match or one particular performer. What what are your thoughts on this? Today? I definitely agree with that. Um, Oh, today for sure. They don't even announce who's going to be on the show. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, back then, I guess you could have guys just like that, that, you know, I, people were disappointed that he didn't show up the next time. So I'm sure the people came out to see him, but it, that was still a preliminary match and all that. But I think champions drew and Andre and that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, as far as today goes, it's just the the brand that's doing it. And to me, it, it hurts the, the fun factor of it. Um, but you know, I'm not the target audience anymore and I don't begrudge, you know, what it's become it just it just is what it is it's just totally different now you know it's like the circus coming to town or ice capades or something so it's um, exactly like that but you know the the kids still have as much fun um you know it's not as not as much psychology to it and that kind of thing but um you know it is what it is and I, I just hate when people get super bitter about it it's like you know we got to live through it and it happened and it's just different now. Um, it's like anything else, man. Time just keeps marching and we got to march with it or you just get left behind. So, yeah, I've kind of been left behind in more ways than one. And like Brandon Same. said, um, I mean, they announced it. We were driving home. It was all we were talking about. Michael Hayes is going to be at the Boston Garden. Are the Freebirds coming to the WWF? Are we going to see Michael Hayes against Bob Backlund, Terry Gordy against Bob Backlund, the Freebirds wrestling for the tag team titles? It just never was brought up again. It wasn't mentioned on TV. It wasn't in the next month's program. It was just dropped, and I I believe they just did that so the local promoter could find out like how many people were were watching World Class and were they into it, and the answer was yes. That's what I was going to ask you, if it was just kind of a horse hockey you know for lack of a better term and they just wanted to see and they had no intentions of that actually happening that's Um, what i believe so yeah well that answers the question then because that makes a lot of a lot of sense actually yeah but anyway so i mean like i said i I really believe that you know there are exceptions but people come just to see the product not to see or back in the day they came to see the overall wwf product not necessarily Backlund or Hulk Hogan or whoever against whatever wrestler. But getting to our topic at hand for the day, this show is coming out on September 17th, 2021, which is the 40th anniversary of Ric Flair winning the NWA championship for the first time. In my opinion, he is the greatest wrestler and thus the greatest champion of all time. And we've got a lot to talk about here. This was good stuff. Let me ask you, Brendan, how did you find out about Ric Flair winning the, the title? Uh, it would have been on Georgia that uh, Saturday. I actually went back, <clears throat> excuse me, earlier today, and I skipped ahead to the 26th thinking, you know, it would be the next week before they would announce it. And I, I, I found out they had announced it two days later on the first Saturday, right after he'd won it on the 19th. And that show was up on YouTube. It's actually, I think at like 45 minutes of the second, it's done in two parts, that one for some reason. And, uh, of course, Gordon, right at the first, uh, you know, comes out with his dramatic somber, we've got disturbing news. Dusty Rhodes has lost the title. And, I was surprised how many fans cheered (laughs) 
one guy kind of went all right at first and then a ton of cheers before they'd even heard that flair was the one who took it oh wow and then when they when he said flair's name he got a bunch of cheers and then goes into the spiel you know he's in route right now we've got him on an airplane he's going to be here so literally just two days after on that saturday show and like I said, it's up on YouTube. So if people want to go watch it, his first interview is at the 40, I wrote it down. It's like 43 minutes and 45 seconds. And it's right after the whole popularity contest in Georgia with the little wrestling two kind of heel turn thing. And then, uh, Tommy Rich walks off, and of course, Flair comes out with the belt, saying that was a great interview. I was embarrassed to stand backstage while Tommy Rich is out here with this Mickey Mouse little trophy that he couldn't get a cup of coffee for downtown. (laughs) (laughs) So it's definitely worth uh, checking out. And then, um, so yeah, that first weekend, two days later, he was in there, which I guess makes sense because he wrestled. I guess we'll get into some of that. Um, he wrestled around Georgia a bit. And then I know his first card was the next weekend at the Omni. Uh, first wrestling two would have been his first opponent at the Omni. So, yeah, uh, just two days after. And I was uh, really shocked, actually. I figured Dusty was going to hold the belt for a while that time, which he did. But um, I just. You know, I guess I always figured Flair would at some point be it, but I was I was a little bit surprised, but happy as well because he was perfect, you know. Oh yeah, I I well going on down a different road. I mean, for the first time, I found out that the NWA Championship changed hands not from a magazine when Dusty won the belt in 1981. I got Florida Championship Wrestling on cable. And that would be the last time I wouldn't hear about it from a magazine, which once again shows you how much the world was changing. I found out I just started getting WTBS wrestling um, on cable on October 1st, 1981. They added TBS to our cable package. And two days later, October 3rd, I'm already like beyond excited because I now have WTBS wrestling and boom, cherry on the Sunday. Ric Flair is the new NWA champion. I was I was ecstatic. Yeah, and, you know, that would have only been three weeks in, so the mags wouldn't have, you know, and I got wrestling at the chase at the time, so they did their tapings three weeks ahead, so it was even a couple weeks for them to um, have Flair on as the champ. So, yeah, Georgia was definitely on top of it, and uh, another odd thing, not odd, but, you know, Mid-Atlantic was pretty much his home territory, and I went back and watched today the first episode oh i think would have been the 26th of september where they announced that he'd won and they did it right at the first and it was just kind of a minute long thing and crockett was real happy but it was it was kind of odd that they didn't make a bigger deal of it than than they did and then i was trying to see when he actually showed up on mid atlantic championship wrestling and at least on the network the first one is like december or something but that's got to be wrong or or he was on the worldwide show cuz i can't imagine it being that long before he was actually on tv or they're just not putting it in the listings no one thing i didn't realize that the shows from like 81 82 on the network that 
at least I've been told that was the B show. The A show was Worldwide Wrestling, which we, you know, weren't getting, aren't getting it's, on the it, network. Yeah, and that's too bad because I'm sure they've got them at least as far back as these go. So, just well, you know, hopefully one day they will put them out there. Uh, we've got some questions we asked the Facebook group. Uh, Craig Bartimoli says, was the average fan surprised when Flair won? And then Jamie Ward said, I was surprised when he showed up on TBS with the belt that Saturday. Oh, Brandon, were you surprised? Yeah, I was. I was really surprised. Like I said, um, I, you know, I figured Dusty would keep it for at least a year. Um, but being 11, you know, you, you, and not knowing the ins and outs, I, you know, I, I wasn't positive. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely shocked and, and the crowd there was shocked. And like I said, a lot of them cheered when they'd said Dusty had lost and they hadn't even said who he'd lost it to. <laughs> they just were sort of happy. So, but the studio there kind of always had that love hate thing with him. Um, at least by 81, they did, which, you know, I knew later on. It was definitely there, but I was kind of surprised to, to hear the cheers uh, going back and looking at that today. So it was I just mean, that surprises odd. me, too. I mean, because back then the wrestling audiences were a lot more Pavlovian. You know, they they cheered the baby faces and booed the heels every single time. I am with you. I was very, very surprised. Ric Flair won the title. For no other reason than I anticipated Dusty having it for at least two or three years. I, you know, it wasn't a quickie, unlike his first run. Um, you know, he appeared on TV. They were doing programs. And like I said, I was, you know, I was like, wow, Dusty lost the belt in, in three months. And the NWA championship did some, an unusual amount of bouncing around in 1981. It sure did. Uh, the most that I had seen you know, from, cause I guess I started in 77, early 77. And that was the most ever, you know, the rich thing in April and then dusty just a month later. And then three months later, flair gets it. And then it was kind of stable then for what, whatever was two years or so his first reign. But, um, yeah, did a whole lot of bouncing around that in just the summer, spring, summer of and into fall of 81 was definitely a a time. And I guess it was because race was getting older. And then I wonder, too, how much, you know, he had a bit of stroke and with Sam and everybody and how much of that was trying to bump his title reins up to beat Thez, you know. Um, I'm sure that was some sort of consideration, at least in his mind, it had to have been. It definitely, excuse me, definitely had to have been. Um, I mean, I can tell you, and I, I mean this with no disrespect to Har- for Har- to Harley Race or his memory or anything like that. By the time he lost the title for good in 1981, I was ready for a new NWA champion. I mean, and, and time goes by so much slowly when you're younger and so much quickly when you're older. I mean, those four years really started to drag on towards the absolutely, end. Absolutely, absolutely. As good as he was, and he, you know, he looked older. But at the time, you know, that's sort of what a tough guy wrestler looked like. You know, most of the main event guys, except for your Tommy Riches and you know your Von Erichs and stuff, were older, grizzled sort of looking guys. They weren't uh, the way that they are now. But it was definitely time. Uh, 
time for a new guy. And I, and I liked uh, race just cause he usually, you know, he was so tough and fun to watch at the time, you know, you got to kind of, it's easy to look back on things to today if you weren't there to see them and kind of crap on it because you weren't there to see the credibility that was actually there at the time, you know? Um, so, but we sort of talked about that before. It's just, you know, things change and you can either be bitter about it or go on, you know, it's just, it's just wrestling. It's supposed to be fun. So. You know, not really sticking to it. Well, I, I guess this is kind of on topic. I mean, about 30 years ago, MTV would run this commercial, and this guy was like, oh, I'm, REM is my favorite band. I'm going to be listening to REM 30 years from now. And I'm like, I, I watch this. I'm like, I'm never going to be that guy. I am never going to be that guy. I'm always, I am always going to try different bands, try different you know, everything. And eventually I turned into that guy who was just listening to the same stuff over and over again. And it's hard the same not to. And it's funny because my brother's six years older and I'm sort of like you. I still listen to the older stuff and he'll be he just turned 56 and he's still constantly, you know, listening to new newer stuff. Um, he's just a really look forward kind of guy. He's not sentimental or nostalgic at all. And I think that's a, a big part of that, you know? Yeah, I, I made it until I was about 40 years old, and the rock station I listened to, WBCN, went to an all-talk format, and BCN's gone now, and then WFNX hung it up, so I'm like, okay, I don't have a place to listen to new music to. But anyway, getting off that subject, Richard Conroy asked, do you think it would have been better had Ric Flair won the title in Charlotte instead of St. Louis? Richard, thanks for the question. Thank you for listening. He actually won it in Kansas City. Um, and Rick really, and we'll we'll talk more about this. Rick really sandbagged having winning the NWA championship in Kansas City. He said he had no real background there. It wasn't his town. Um, I mean, what were your thoughts on that? I, you know, I was gonna bring up the same thing. He talked about it in his book and a couple other places. He just thought it was sort of all wrong and I have no real knowledge of the fact, but I just wonder how much if the dusty input had input on that, possibly not wanting to lose it in Florida or Georgia or Charlotte or somewhere that he was more well known. And you got to remember too, in 81, Sam was still around. There was still, um, a board that, that sort of mattered. Um, that made decisions and KC as as bad as it had gotten was one of those really historic towns and Harley won his first title there. And I just wonder if they had done that to, you know, certainly maybe try to pop the crowd a little bit because they were definitely down from their heyday and just how much of it was a historic thing. Um, you know, because they could have easily done it in St. Louis as 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 easily as Kansas City, you know, so it was definitely odd. And and Rick has talked about it uh, not being as he just said there was no glitz or glamour to it, really, you know, and, and it was kind of true. Uh, Memorial Hall was real historic and all that. But by 81, you'd think they would have done it somewhere else. But I can see why they did it at the same time. 
You know, that's the way the NWA title changed hands back in the day. It was, you know, it always felt like just another night on the road and boom, you're there when the title changes hands. And that's really Starcade 83 changed everything because it was a big buildup for the NWA championship match and it actually changed hands. I had never happened before. Exactly. And any, you know, it was like any given night before and it was sort of like they were trying to keep that psychology and keep the fans guessing and they didn't always want to do it at a huge building um, because, you know, it sort of made it more real. Well, why couldn't they win? And in Kansas City wasn't a tank town or anything like that, but. As far as the territories went at the time, even though race was there and Geigel was, you know, a big wig with Sam and all that, um, Sam didn't have a lot of input and, you know, frankly, kept most of the guys from Kansas City on the prelims when they'd come to St. Louis. So it was it was definitely odd for sure. Yeah, I think St. Louis would have made a lot of sense uh, because it is such a historic city. And, you know, St. Louis was its own promotion. So, it, you know, I think that would have made sense if, you know, if Rick wanted something a little more glamorous. Should they have done it in Charlotte? I Ever since Richard gave me this question, I've been going back and forth on it because it would have gotten a huge pop. It wouldn't have hurt Dusty. It, you know, they, they should not have built it as a giveaway that Ric Flair is going to win the championship like they did in Starcade. At the same time, there had to be something about you know, your average mid-Atlantic wrestling fan who's at this point has pretty much grown up on Ric Flair and now he's the baby face and a local hero and winning the title in, in Charlotte. Yeah, you know, um, to me it would have been too obvious, I guess, and they hadn't gone that route yet, like you said, until they did the the whole Starcade and build-up. So, to, I, you know, I didn't really have a huge problem with it. I see why Rick did and, and continuing to go back to Kansas City and work with, you know, they didn't have much good talent there anymore. You know, Rufus was loved by the guys, but, you know, you didn't want to have to go to an hour draw with them. And, you know, so, I, you know, I think it would have been too maybe hokey to do it in Charlotte since he was such a huge star and babyface there. I think they needed, just in my opinion, to do it in a town where he was more of the heel. So, you know what? That makes sense, actually. I mean, if they did it somewhere where he was going to be heel because that's where he was going, that's what he was going to be everywhere, everywhere except the Mid-Atlantic uh, Territory. Um, I mean, I can I can totally see Dusty not wanting to do it in Georgia or especially in Florida. Like I, I would not have asked that of Dusty Rhodes. No, and um, I'm sure he would have had a huge problem with it, sort of like Brett did with the whole Shawn Michaels thing. And you know, he he, I, you know, I just I can't blame him if he did ask that, and um, it's sort of a normal thing, and. You know, Dusty had worked Kansas City as far back as, you know, his really early career or so, but he wasn't there all the time, and their TV certainly didn't go anywhere in Florida, so he didn't have to worry about that. So it just sort of, I guess, made sense. I The, the keel would have been cooler, I think, um, or the checker dome, but it was what it was, you know, and at, at least Flair got the got the belt, so... That's a good point. And by the way, as someone who watched Florida Championship Wrestling back then, they did have the backstory 
that uh, the assassin had injured Dusty Rhodes' leg and uh, injured his either his knee or his leg or both. I don't remember. So they fell back on that. It's like, you know, the assassin number one, Jody Hamilton, is largely responsible for Dusty not no longer being champion. Right, just like they did with Funk in the, the first uh, deal in 79. He, he always had something, so... <laughs> Oh, of course, of course. I mean, Dusty loses the NWA championship on a DQ in 1979. Dusty could be a bit much. Anyway, Mike Fahey, go Terps, writes, if not Rick, who would have been your second choice and third and fourth? By the way, would any of those guys have been a better choice? What do you think? I don't think any of them. None of mine would have been a better uh, choice, I don't think. Um you know, in 81, even DiBiase wasn't really ready. I guess maybe he could have done it. Um, I, I really like Ken Patera, but I don't think he was a big enough name, even though he was Missouri champ and Intercontinental champ the year before simultaneously. Yep. You know, in 81, it was sort of like he was still working wrestling at the chase, though. And I know him and Slaughter had a main event against uh, Andre and Rocky Johnson. Um, So he was still working St. Louis and Stan still obviously liked him. But he wouldn't have been better than Flair. Sergeant Slaughter was working. He was really good at the time, but he was way too gimmicky, especially with the name. I just don't think that would have worked. David Von Erich, you know, I really believe at some point he would have held it, whether it would have just been for the short little time like Kerry did. He was definitely, I think, going to. He just worked St. Louis too much, and Sam liked them too much. And at the time, in 81, Sam was still around, so... But I don't think he had quite gone to Florida yet to do that heel run. So at the time, no. And then race was too old. So I I don't know of anybody better. I loved Tommy Rich, but um, he wasn't certainly, I didn't think, a long-term NWA champion. Um, I could have seen it in just through a fan's eyes. I could have seen it in 1981, but... Well, he I mean, was so popular off of off of GCW, and um, so I mean, yeah, obviously he. I was happy when he did win it, um, and I guess you're right. In '81, he was still thin enough and hadn't, you know, kind of ballooned up and whatnot, and he was hugely popular. And, um, you know, he'd done the heel run in Memphis before. So if he needed to do the tweener thing like Jack Briscoe did in places, he definitely could have pulled that off here and there if he if he needed to. So but I just don't you know, I don't see any of them being necessarily better than than Flair was at the time. If you had asked me this in 1981, I would have said that. He wasn't he, he was among the best choices in 81. I would have said Dusty's the best choice and, you know, not to go circle around that. But I thought, you know, he was the number one guy. He was clearly, you know, the the top guy in the NWA. And I thought he was ready to take on that role. Um, So Dusty's on my list. Patera is on my list. Number two, Greg Valentine was another guy I think that could have carried the title and think about, you know, Ric Flair challenging Greg Valentine for the NWA championship. 
actually, I hadn't uh, thought about him, and he's a really, really good choice. And if Don Morocco had worked St. Louis and, you know, not been in the WWF all of 81, he would have been a damn good choice as well. Morocco would have been a really good choice. I know he has said multiple times that he had no interest in holding the championship. But, yeah, right after his 81 run in the WWF, he would would have been a great NWA champion. Another guy who I think would have been really good in the role in, in, in 1981 who didn't want it. I mean, I thought Jack Briscoe could still do it. Uh, yeah, he's another one I hadn't thought of. Um, you know, and him and Jerry were still great in mid Atlantic when they came in just a little bit after that, I guess it was late 81 or early 82 and came in. Cause you know, watch some of those matches versus Piper that are just on TV and, he could definitely still go, and I'm sure the matches at the house shows were even even better than than what they were showing on TV. So, yeah, he was a little bit older and, you know, balding a little bit. But look at Hogan, you know, oh, three yeah. years later, he, he was practically, you know, the whole horseshoe and didn't matter for him a bit. Nope, did not matter a bit. I had Teddy DiBiase on my list, even though... I mean, I thought Tabi DiBiase was one of the greatest of all time. Um, but in 1981, I just did not buy him or may not have bought him as a big enough star to carry the NWA title. I'm a little bit biased because he was kind of a middle of the card guy uh, two years earlier in the WWF. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good point. And he hadn't done his heel turn yet in mid uh, South. That's sort of what you know, kind of brought him out more for me than just a, you know, white meat baby face. Cause you know, I saw him on St. Louis and I actually saw him at the keel verse race. And, you know, I was honestly disappointed that it wasn't a better main event. I ended up having a great time, but as a kid, I would have rather seen somebody else. So yeah, until he did his heel turn, I didn't buy him as a you know, he just didn't seem to have that killer instinct, which he ended up showing later. But at the time, I didn't think he had it. <laughs> no, and and the rumor was that Ted DiBiase was scheduled to get what Dusty Rhodes got, a, a three-month run with the title, and he'll, he'll always have that uh, former NWA champion shine, and they were planning on building him up into a bigger star, which obviously just never happened. Now... This is an interesting question. They're all interesting. But Brian Jones asked, who on the board was anti-Flair and who was pro-Flair? Was there anyone that was pro-Flair but anti-Crockett or anti-Flair but pro-Crockett? Finally, outside of DiBiase, was there a legit consideration to another person in 1981? Let's go to the first part. I mean, do you know anything about, like, which promoters were pushing for Flair? Which ones were like, no, no good with Flair? (laughs) Excuse me. No, I, you know, I don't. And the only one I can think of would have been Eddie Graham because he was, I'm sure, pushing for Dusty. And I know he got some, you know, less than stellar opponents in Florida during that first reign. But I don't know if that was more that he didn't like Flair or just that Dusty was his guy. and, And that's why he did it. And then, uh, you know, I was trying to think if I'd ever heard anybody really talk bad about the Crockett's, and I don't think I've ever heard anything, or if I did, I just, you know, kind of forgot it. So, 
you know, I don't think that came into consideration. I'm sure Sam was cordial with the Crockett's and, you know, Vince senior was still on the board at that time in 81 because junior didn't take over till the next June. So I'm sure he liked flair enough. He brought him up a couple times, you know, it would have been years before, but you know, he was aware of who he was and how he drew and that kind of thing. And, I would guess that Geigel liked him, and um, so, you know, and then you had Barnett in, in Georgia, and I'm sure he liked Flair plenty, so I guess Eddie Graham might have been the only one, and I, I don't know if it was a true dislike over just the fact that, you know, Dusty was sort of his guy, and he would have rather had him in there. I agree with you 100%. I don't think anyone was really anti-Crockett. I don't think anyone was anti-flair i think you know the only one that i know of that you know didn't want flair as champion was the dusty uh, eddie graham alliance and just because nothing against flair just they thought dusty was a better choice well yeah flair said it himself you know and i forgot to mention that during uh the earlier thing you know talking about kansas city that was one of the things it was kansas city and He's like, and Dusty was, they were still really close and he was taking it from him and Dusty didn't want to drop it yet. So that sort of took a little of the luster off it for him too. So, Yeah, our next question from Dominic Violi, hope I pronounced that correctly, is how long before Eddie Graham in Florida came around to Flair? Flair described his first reign is not memorable for at least the first year because he was wrestling guys like Charlie Cook in Florida and Rufus R. Jones in Central States. I have a lot to say about this, but I want to get what you have to say in first, Brandon. Well, uh, not a whole lot. I just, you know, I don't remember if, you know, Eddie owned the territory, obviously, but I think Dory Jr. was booking at the time. So, you know, were they really trying to screw Flair, or did he just really like Charlie Cook and was trying to get him over by giving him some, some world title shots? and. You know, it obviously got much better for Flair in Florida later. So, yeah, um, I mean, as far as, you know, Rufus R. Jones in central states, I mean, what am I going to say? It's central states. You know, they they're, they're just didn't have a lot of talent there. It was him or Bob Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just that guy wasn't there. Geigel was, you know, obviously, well, I, I say playing out the string. He was still promoting in 1989. But I mean, that was definitely a a mid-major territory at best as far as florida goes i know rick flair said what he said in his book and i was a little bit taken aback at the time because you know it felt like rick was saying that uh eddie graham and dusty Rhodes were almost sabotaging his first title reign um by putting him out there against charlie cook and that book came out when 2002 and I, or 2003. And I have completely disagreed with Rick from get go. I mean, that's just how the Florida promotion rolled. They would use the Florida title as a springboard to try to get someone that either Dusty Rhodes or Eddie Graham uh, liked over. And as the Florida champion, they would go, they would have matches with the NWA champion. They did this, with Ron, uh, Jimmy Garvin, excuse me, and Manny Fernandez in 1979. I had never heard of Manny Fernandez before he won the Florida championship and Same. subsequently had matches against Harley Race. They did it with Brian Blair in 1982. They did it with Mike, uh, Mike McGee, Scott McGee, and Mike Rotundo 
1983. It's just the, the way the Florida promotion ran. Mike Rotundo was, was not a big name when he won the Florida championship. He was a mid-card guy in the Carolinas, and Eddie Graham took a liking to him and brought him in, gave him a push, and made sure that, you know, please take this guy seriously. He's the Florida State heavyweight champion. And then it was Rotundo that went around the horn against Ric Flair in early 1984. That's the way I saw it, too. But, you know, obviously we weren't there, but I think that's more plausible. These guys have to do business next week when you're gone as the NWA champ. So they're trying to get guys over and it's guys that they like. And, you know, it's easy to look back and, you know, a Charlie Cook was definitely not that great. But some of the other guys definitely belonged in there with him and i i agree of just the way it was more than any personal vendetta that he that he had eddie himself yeah i mean as you were saying it's it's just the way the florida promotion ran and you know i i think and i bought charlie cook as a florida state heavyweight champion so it, it's not like you know they put this guy out there who was completely ridiculous i i frankly you know i don't think he did it on purpose but i, I don't think Rick did Charlie Cook. Uh, I don't think he did, he did good good by him in his book. No, he didn't. And I I mean I can understand why Flair would think that, but um, like we said, they they still had to do stuff. And I didn't have the benefit of ever seeing Florida TV, so I was only seeing Charlie through the magazines. I guess he was on Georgia a couple times, and I mean he was obviously an athletic guy, and and it wasn't he wasn't an Otis drunk or. You know, somebody like that that just really didn't belong in the ring. Um, so, no, I, you know, I, he didn't deserve that kind of criticism, at least. Yeah, it, it's kind of sad because that's kind of what he's re- remembered by at this point. And like I said, I, I mean, there were times in like 83, 84, I was like, wow, whatever happened to Charlie Cook? He was pretty good. Yeah, he kind of just disappeared after Florida. Um, I wouldn't uh, have the first clue of where he went after or if he did anything after that, actually. Um, I think he went to Georgia and then he kind of disappeared. It was one of those, you know, he, he seemed like, I mean, hey, he was, I mean, the way I looked at wrestling, I'm like, here's the, here's a guy good enough to win the Florida State title. And now he just kind of vanished and, you know, never did anything after that. But anyway. Uh, oh, one other thing, too, that I want to point out now that I'm, I've officially become the Charlie Cook Defense Fund. Um, he was the <laughs> Florida State champion before Ric Flair ever won the belt. Well, that's true, too. So um, that just shows you that Eddie liked him and was pushing him or Dory liked him. And Eddie had the last say no matter who was booked. And so, um, yeah, uh, he, he was in that spot for a reason. No, definitely. Uh, and like I, you know, like I said, it's it's not like they put Charlie Cook out there to draw bad crowds against Ric Flair because you know you're, you're sabotaging your own promotion. Eddie Graham's not going to do that. No, he was too smart for that and not uh, vindictive enough. I I wouldn't think he just no. too smart for that. So. Exactly. Same here. The show uh, from the Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City, uh, forty years ago from the day the show is being released. It's a uh, September 17th, 1981. I I don't know if the order of these matches are correct, but they have in the opener, Harley Race defeats Sergeant Slaughter. And this is after Sergeant Slaughter's run in the WWF where he got over like crazy. So A, I'm surprised that he's in 
in Kansas City to begin with, and B, he's losing to Harley Race? Well, you know, he actually worked Kansas City before he was Sergeant Slaughter. He was called D.I. Bob Slaughter. Yep. So he worked there before, and maybe he was just kind of doing, he worked there in St. Louis. Like I said, he'd done a tag match with Patera against Andre and Rocky Johnson at some point in 81 after his WWF run. I don't know what date. You know, his final one was for Vince, but that's where he went. Um, it was a bit shocking to to see that. Um, and then what's more interesting is he wins the U.S. title in Mid-Atlantic just within a month of Rick winning the NWA belt. So he was definitely on his way to Charlotte and, you know, I guess just picking up some dates before his actual start date. Because he was on the TV, I want to say the September 19th airing um, of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And he only did a couple appearances. And then I guess they he won the tournament by maybe October 10th or 11th, 12th, somewhere around in there. That so sounds he was about right. Definitely on his way to Charlotte at the time. And maybe Harley just knew him and, you know, liked his work and figured hell i'll bring him in and have a match with him and um maybe spike the spike the crowd a little so yeah i mean i remember i remember like sergeant slaughter didn't exist until the wwf put the moniker on him and i had never seen a picture of this guy before so i mean i'm thinking okay this guy might just be a wwf creation and then early 82 i pick up one of the after magazines and i see that this character is now totally uh, to be taken seriously because he has won the United States championship uh, in the mid Atlantic area. Yeah. And there was that great uh, wrestler cover, you know, uh, him and Harley race. Uh, I, I just, we're just talking about those two, but in mid Atlantic uh, match, you know, how Harley's tried to win an easy title goes wrong or disastrous or something like that. I so. remember that. So, yeah, and the first time I'd seen him, I didn't get WWF TV, but I got the MSG cards. And the very first one I caught was his match versus Backlund. And I'd never heard of the guy before. So I'm all excited to get to see Madison Square Garden Wrestling for the first time. And Vince, you know, within the first 30 seconds in an Armada event, Bob Backlund facing Sergeant Slaughter. And I'm like, gosh, who's this guy, you know? And ended up being a great match. Slaughter juiced and you know, got cracked in the head with the chair and it would have been nice to have that rematch actually, but Bruno got it. Cause Backlund was in Japan. Yep. They did the angle where Sergeant Slaughter attacked Arnold Skolin on TV and Bruno came out of semi-retirement to get a little revenge. And it was his final Madison square garden main event until he came out of retirement in 1985. And now we've got some, some pretty crazy wrestling in between the, that and the main event. Bruiser Bob Sweetan defeats Randy Morse by disqualification. Like I guess the less said about Sweetan, the better. That's Randy Morse. Exactly what I was gonna say. Okay. <laughs> and Randy Morse is a guy I have never seen uh, a picture of. I've never seen one of his matches. I've just seen his name out there in results. The I sort of looked him up on a website, and the really the. Best thing I can see about him is he was a big guy. He was six seven two eighty evidently. Oh wow! 
and went by, I guess, Big Randy Mountain and Sky High Morse and a couple other places. Um, I think there was like five or 600 results for him. I didn't look those up, but I'd never heard of him uh, either. So, but I, I did look up his size and he was a, a fairly large guy. And it's funny you said that about Sweetan because I, as soon as I saw his name, I knew that's exactly what I was going to say. The less said about that guy, the better. Uh, I'll just say this. I mean, I remember, you know, just being a magazine guy, seeing him as the top star in Southwest Championship Wrestling and going, okay, this is not a major league promotion. Uh, Buzz Tyler and J.J. Dillon, who was actually getting a push as a singles wrestler managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck around this time, defeated Ron Sexton and Terry Gibbs. Uh, Terry Gibbs is a guy, I, I, I saw him, he had a long run as a jobber in the WWF kind of a nondescript career before that yeah well and remember he was uh private terry gibbs for and held the flag for slaughter and no uh, that was terry uh daniels oh that's right that was private terry daniels that's right well that's even more um then i'm wondering if i've got this wrong then because i think terry gibbs maybe broke in sort of the same way that adonis did in southwest maybe uh, kind of an out of the crowd kind of guy um where they were taking on all comers and he was pretty tough and so i think that was him unless i've got him mixed up with daniels but i think that was terry gibbs that did that and um, but that's about all he's, you know, I can remember him for. And and, yeah. and once again, I may have him mixed up. You you might. I'm not sure, because you basically just ran down Terry Daniels resume. He was a, a tough guy who got in the business by taking on Adrian Adonis and one of those, you know, I'll take in on anyone from the crowd challenges. And this guy who's a former Marine and a former gold gloves boxer shows up and it supposedly it was a wild scene yeah that's what i'd heard too and uh he evidently impressed enough of people to say you know maybe we should break this kid in <laughs> it's too bad he didn't have more of a personality as, as tough as he was um he might have might have done something so yeah i i agree um i thought i thought he was a little bit underutilized in the wwf as, as sergeant slaughter's protege in the Cobra Corps. Like, I think either if they didn't like Daniels enough to do it, they should have got someone else to do it and given that thing a bigger push. Well, to me, they should have brought, well, Kernoodle at the time. Well, yeah, they, he, had, he had already had his run with Kernoodle. I was thinking of 81, but this would have been 84. It was sad what happened to Kernoodle, actually, you know, the, going from those huge main events to sort of opening cards at Madison Square Garden, although I'm sure his wallet wasn't complaining. So what do I know? You know, it was sad what happened to Kernoodle. And it, it remains uh, just a, a great mystery what happened to him at this point in his career. He goes from NWA tag team champion to literally a guy who never won a match on television back to being NWH uh, tag team champion. But anyway, uh, we have Tengu defeating Billy Howard. I think Tengu was uh, Professor Sonoda, but I'm not positive. Do you have any okay. idea? I, could, I tried like hell to find something out about him today and could find nothing. Uh, it's mostly all about some newer guy named Tengu. So they very well could have been professor sonata which you know um he obviously had a run in georgia watched him on tv quite a bit uh there 
and I guess in, in Kansas City, but that's really all I know about the guy. And I, then Bill Howard was the, you know, semi-infamous Radamias in ICW. Oh, that's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chang Chung defeated Omar Atlas. Uh, I believe everyone Chang Chung tonight was the great Kabuki, but I'm, once again, I'm not sure. Uh, that was actually Kendo Nagasaki. Oh, okay. Thank you for the info. Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, definitely, uh, I guess he went by Mr. Sakurada too, and then he, you know, in Florida became Kendo Nagasaki. Um, at least, uh, that's what I think. Um, cause I believe Kabuki went by Takachio possibly in Kansas right. city. Um, so yeah, I think the Chang Chung was definitely Kendo Nagasaki. And then I think, you know, cause JJ went to Florida after Kansas city and that's when, you know, Nagasaki sort of showed up in Florida. So possibly he put in a word for him once he got there. That that totally makes sense. So we've got those four matches uh, sandwiched between the world title change and Harley Race versus Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, once again, Harley Race, uh, Ric Flair defeats Dusty Rhodes, title change with Luthez as a special guest referee. Yeah, and I rewatched that match, I guess last night it was, just the clips that are out there, and it had to have been from St. Louis TV because Larry Matisic was doing the uh, commentary for it. And the clips, you know, um, wasn't that exciting of a match, uh, no juice or anything. Um, to me, it looked like maybe they sort of botched the finish. I know he had hurt Dusty's leg, and... They were supposed to do the suplex off the top rope, and he actually sort of suplexed Flair, but then Flair jumps on top of him instead of just letting him fall back on him. So I don't know if they actually botched that or that's the way they planned to do it. But from the clips, it certainly wasn't anything special, you know, nothing crazy. I could see them maybe not wanting to get any juice, maybe because Thez was the special referee, you know, maybe. And, and one thing I noticed too, I know Dusty juiced at times, but his forehead seemed to heal up better almost while he was the NWA champ than any other time <laughs> that I saw him. I don't know if he was, did that on purpose or cause race certainly, you know, juiced a lot. Um, and it, it may just be a misperception on, on my part, but just seems like in some of the pictures, his forehead isn't quite as raw and angry looking. <laughs> that raw and angry looking is a good way to discuss Dusty Rhodes forehead in the early eighties. All right. So let's talk about, and I say this all the time, this hour flies by. We've only got like seven or eight minutes left. Um, Ric Flair's first title defense is a draw against Harley Race in Des Moines, Iowa, the very next night. And there were pictures of this match in the After Magazines, good bloody brawl. And I wonder what it's like to be in an arena and you you think you're going to see Dusty Rhodes against Harley Race. And then they get on the microphone before the show and they tell you, hey, last night in Kansas City, Ric Flair won the world's championship and he's going to be wrestling Harley Race tonight. I think, uh, especially in Des Moines, Iowa, huge wrestling, you know, professional and college, just the, be huge in that area. I think they were probably excited as hell. I definitely would have been. 
Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this before. I mean, I remember being in the Boston Garden in 1984, and Greg Valentine was ready to wrestle his match. He's sitting there with the robe on, and they announce his opponent. I forget who it was, and say, and his opponent, the new Intercontinental Champion, Greg Valentine, and he opens the robe to show us the belt. And even though he was a heel, he got a huge pop. I mean, fans love finding out surprises like that. Well, yeah, and back then it didn't happen every, you know, week. And it was uh, it was a big deal when a, when a major title changed hands. Um, it was usually really cool. <laughs> to say the least. Now, here's something else I want to talk about. The same night in Richmond and the next night in Charlotte, Jay Youngblood is the substitute for Ric Flair in tagged in. Well, one's a regular tag match with Wahoo McDaniel against Piper and Abdul the Butcher. And then on the 19th in Charlotte, it's Youngblood subbing for Flair with Wahoo McDaniel and Ricky Steamboat versus Ole Anderson, Roddy Piper and Abdul the Butcher. I just wonder what it was like for the fans in Richmond and Charlotte to get the announcement that, hey, Ric Flair is not going to be here tonight. Jay Youngblood's going to take his place because Ric Flair is now the NWA champion and he has to assume Dusty States. Like, that must have been wild. Well, I wonder if they actually did that. Um, I guess they probably would have. Um, but you wonder, I guess he was big enough there that they did. But I just thought maybe they had, you know, said he was, you know, hurt or something. And maybe the disappointment of him not being there. But you're actually uh, made a damn good point. Um, they probably wanted to get that out to people at the arenas just to create a buzz before TV uh, that weekend. Because the way their TV was set up, it wasn't until the 26th, uh, unless they're missing an episode on on the network, until they announced it. Uh, And it was right at the top of the hour. So, you know, I guess my first thought when when I saw that today was, boy, they must have been disappointed that he wasn't there. I didn't even think about them announcing that he was the new champion. And in that case, I'm sure they were excited as hell for him. That's the thing. I mean, I'm figuring if you're coming out to see Ric Flair in the main event and you're getting Jay Youngblood instead. Like you better that, have a good reason. <laughs> exactly. You know, nothing against Jay Youngblood, but he wasn't Ric Flair. And exactly. you know, it's, it's kind of a, a good news, bad news thing. Well, Rick isn't here because he's off defending his newly won NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And I'm guessing that got a huge pop in Charlotte and Richmond, assuming they did it. Absolutely. And and then now that you've laid it out logically like that, I think you're probably absolutely correct. Um, cause that sure as hell better than hearing the, you know, it's got a hurt knee or whatever stuck in, you know, whatever town or whatever. So yeah, that your, your, your thing makes a lot, lot more sense. Well, and it's, it's just a guess. I'll be happy to tell you that by the way, Flair won the title on a Thursday night. So I'm not sure how many of the TV stations were able to get that information out on their television on uh, Saturday, September 19th back then. I mean, we, I'm sure by Thursday, once that tape is ready to roll, they weren't going to, they weren't going to change anything on it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, we know Georgia did for sure because we can go and, you know, see that on YouTube, but everywhere else that maybe did three weeks worth of TV. Maybe they did in Florida um, since they did every Tuesday or whatever it was at the Sportatorium. And maybe the next Tuesday they let people know there. 
but I, you know, I didn't get Florida TB, so I don't know. The only one I really know um, is, like I said, Georgia. We know for sure that uh, they knew for sure two days later, and and Flair showed up and did that incredible interview. Like I said, it's on YouTube, so if you're interested in him and this, you know, at all, I would seek that out for sure. And just put the date in, September 19th, 81, GCW, and it'll it's two parts. It'll pop up. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I have I, I have that show on DVD, and I should have watched it coming in. Uh, Brandon, once again, another great show. The hour flies by. Thank you for taking the time. You were a great guest. Absolutely, man. I always have a good time, and uh, I always appreciate you asking me, man. Always, always fun. No, it's it's been too long, and I, I always say that because I I feel like I now have just a stable of great guests, which you are one of. Uh, I want to thank Lightning Luke Hippelman, our producer, for all of the great work that he does making this show sound as good as he makes it sound. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols! This concludes our podcast day. 